Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. In Jinu Chong's genre-bending brain twister of a debut novel, Flux, three characters, Bo, Brandon, and Blue, who may indeed be the same person, meet each other in childhood, adulthood, and middle age. Each grapples with the ghosts of the past and a deep core grief that cannot be contained within a single thread of existence. 28-year-old Brandon is sleeping with the boss at his media company when a series of layoffs sweep him up and disrupt what seems like stability and normalcy. When a freak accident introduces him to Lev, a mysterious employee of a startup that promises an endless supply of energy for the grid, Brandon is thrown a lifeline, but one that will cost him everything. Bracketing the story of techno-capitalism gone wild are Brandon's memories of Bo's love of the TV show Raider, a gritty noir detective thriller with a hard-boiled protagonist, Thomas Raider, and his child Asian sidekick, Moto. The actor portraying Raider has been convicted of serious abuses, and in retrospective viewings, the show plays with racist stereotypes. And yet something about the television program acts as a talisman, a protection against a childhood trauma that haunts Bo and Brandon. Contesting the nature of time itself, Jinu Chong's flux broaches questions about how we mourn, what our present self owes our past and future selves, how time loops back on itself as a re-experience of grief, and all while carrying us through a riveting, time-traveling story that left me questioning the very nature of what we call reality. Flux defies easy categorization, but that is its magic trick. It is a story of love, grief, capitalist dystopia, environmental catastrophe, the science and experience of memory, and all of those things all at once, while being very much more. Jinu is a graduate of Columbia's MFA program. Welcome to the show, Jinu. Thank you, Chris, for having me. This is that, uh, and for the amazing summary of that book. I've never heard it like that before. Well, thank you so much. This is, um, I mean, I'm just looking at the book right now, and its cover matches the wonders within. I wonder um, if you had a hand in the design of the cover, which is this amazing sort of metallic techno fluid coursing through the title and wrapping around the book. I'm really glad uh, to bring that up because the the cover is 
one of my it, it's it's probably it was the easiest part of this whole process hmm. like, of putting this book out there because I um like most authors had given you know a, a list of t- covers that I admired or maybe thought could be could serve as good inspiration for this kind of cover I was thinking of two um one is uh the u.s cover of 1q84 by murakami and then, oh i love i love that cover so much it's just, it's just fantastic and just it's so futuristic and and also a little bit nostalgic i i love it so much and i thought that the title of this book flux would have uh be able to do the same thing with the letters because it's just four letters mm-hmm. that i i put forth that cover as maybe uh um, for consideration, and then also a, a book by Jesse McCarthy called the, the Fugitivities, which um, was out a couple of years ago, and is this stark black, white, and yellow cover that feels just really uh, new and and eye catching. And it looks like the the, the designer, her name is Beste um, Dogan, and she is a genius. She she took mm. all of those. Um, and and made on her first draft this exact cover. Oh, this is the first draft. That's really, that's really amazing. And and that's what made it so easy is that uh, I I got the email with this cover in it. My editor Carl said, "I really hope you like it." And I was thinking, "Oh my gosh, I have no idea," because sometimes you get um, options or or just a sketch of what it might be and this was the full thing and i I looked at it and it took my breath away and and um i had zero notes on it Hmm. (laughs) which was really really uh exciting and also very convenient and and it, it captures everything i love so much about the book well, I I love it, and I think you uh, it is stark and it is original, and it it matches what's inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a novel about so many different things. Um, we could talk for a very long time about um, all the many things that you contend with. Um, the unending loop of grief, the relativity of time, noir television, Asian American identity, queer identity corporate greed, and that's just naming a few of the major subjects. How did all of these things coalesce for you into a single digestible narrative? It's it uh, with great difficulty, I would say. <laughs> and, um, well, it, it arrived very piecemeal, which was one of the things that stressed me out about writing this, because I try to outline and plan and and put in in synopsis form uh, an entire big project before I start writing it because uh, the writing of it really stresses me out and can be kind of not a fun experience especially if I if I feel that there's something I need to add or or if there's room for some kind of improvisation it it I I'm not good at uh, just writing and so I wanted to have everything down in an outline before I started uh, working on the actual draft. And that started, um, I think about four years ago now, I finished uh, the book by John Carreyrou, Bad Blood, which was, I think it was the definitive account of the fall of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes because mm. uh, Carreyrou was the journalist who exposed her and, 
and uh, really began the the entire chain of events that lead to you know her imprisonment now and and all of her sentencing that we are now seeing like in present day. Uh, but I started with that. I wanted to do a scam story, something about Silicon Valley, something about uh, the 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 kind of the hype machine that exists around startup culture and and um, the way that a lie can just something made out of literally nothing can be spun into a billion dollar movement mm, for no reason at all absolutely none except that the whoever is selling it is seems confident or seems knowledgeable and and uh, people buy into that without a second guess i i was fascinated with the effect that theranos had on its you know its board of directors like all very intelligent very accomplished people who all mm -hmm. just it, it passed their litmus test all of the the investors at walgreens and and um all of the editors at magazines who chose to cover her it, it passed all of their tests for, for with zero qualifications that was that was so interesting to me and i wanted to get into that first of all i wanted to do as well something um involving time travel because it was uh, uh the idea of of stories intersecting each other and um the 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 seed of maybe one character who the reader or, or might recognize as a bunch of different characters kind of talks to himself through through curtains of time felt really interesting and, and rich to do. Uh, from there, I was I was writing a lot of this outline and working on the, the draft while in an MFA program at Columbia. And um, uh, the workshop environment, you know, famously pushes you toward literary work and away from genre. I think that's the mm -hmm. The, the attitude that persists in a lot of these very high-level programs, and so uh, in that environment, people saying that you know they they wanted some more uh, information about the character and what it represents about culture, like the questions, sort of hard-hitting questions about what I what I was trying to say with it. Though those questions influenced me as well, and kind of led to um, the discussion of of television and pop culture that happens throughout the book as well. Um, and then probably the last piece was that I didn't really mean for this to be, uh, this to take so much from my own experience as an Asian American person. But um, I think in, in a couple instances, in the beginning of this, Brandon was fully white and maybe even Raider was white and, and things like that. And, and um, those decisions came, you know, along the tail end of me figuring out what this novel would have, what would deal with. And so it was a lot of different pieces, very complicated. Uh, and I don't, I don't think I uh, had a great time putting the book together like that. It, it was pretty stressful, mm -hmm. uh, but it, I, I think it, it came out 
well in the end. I'm, I'm glad you broached the genre issue. There are going to be some Oscar refrains in this interview because, uh, well, why not? Um, but Guillermo del Toro's admonishment to the Academy um, this weekend that there is no such thing as genre, just cinema, made me think of the status of genre in literature today. Um, genre boundaries have seemed to drop away to some extent, and your reference to the kind of the requirements of literary fiction that exist in some MFA programs, I think, you know, might in fact be at odds with what is going on in publishing writ large, at least as as a means of commercially and critically distinguishing between so-called literary fiction and fiction that carries uh, tropes and identifiers of genre. What's your relationship to genre as as you see it, and um, how do you see it operating in flux? The very interesting thing about that is that which I've learned in the process of publishing this book is that I feel like genre is a much more is much more of a marketing term than I thought it was. Mm. The reason why I think. The, the jacket copy is written in, in a way that kind of casts it as this sci-fi thriller more than a literary work is, I think, you know, for, for it to hit those lists and for, for search engines mm. to pick it up in a certain way that it could be, you know, that, that, that it would be categorized as such. And it worked. I mean, it's, it's on the Amazon lists of science fiction, which I think I didn't really think about before. It's, it seems to be kind of a conscious dis- decision by the author and their whole team on how to actually categorize it because the blurs between those between the lines happen constantly. Um, one of my favorite books in the world is Severance by Ling Ma and she mm, was, she was I love very, that book. Oh it's it's a masterpiece. She was she was very kind enough to read Flux and then the, what she what she wrote back to us about which her thoughts on the book is right on the cover of the, the final version of the book. And we're so lucky to have that. But um, Severance is 100% a science fiction novel, but a lot of people categorize it as just fully literary fiction. And I don't think it matters at all uh, outside the realm of sales and publicity. Um, it's any author's prerogative to kind of push back on certain boxes that that readers might put them in. Like I know Margaret Atwood very famously rejects the notion that she's a science fiction writer. And um, I don't really, I don't, I guess I don't have a problem with that um, because it has nothing to do with the, the writing of it. It has, it, it really just has everything to do with where it's going to go on a bookshelf that, it, that the people in charge will think will make it the most amount of money. Hmm. Yeah, that's well said. Brandon Bow in blue, three names for the same character drawn out across and looped back over and through time, very often feel as though they could be separate characters and 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 the reader perhaps pauses and imagines, have I, you know, misunderstood this? They seem to be one and the same, and yet have clear, clear um, differences about their personality, their understanding of their identity. Brandon has a, prof- a procedure performed on him by a tech startup that is interested in mining neurochemical energy from the brain. That procedure has the side effect, seemingly, of causing a time loop. 
that forces Brandon to relive the death of his mother, the devastation of his father, his estrangement from his brother, and other forms of grief that he's forced to re-remember over and over again. While this is a science fiction trope in play, you're clearly interested in how grief plays with the relativity of how we experience time. Could you talk us through that, um, at least as how you understand the relationship between time and grief in the novel? Uh, certainly, that's that's an amazing question, um, and one of the one of the lucky side effects I think of deciding to do these three characters and having them be the same person in the end is that I get to look at the way that tragedy kind of transforms and trans transforms itself, and then also transforms the person uh, experiencing it over time. And I wanted to strike a very clear difference between all three of them as to how they have sort of how they are at at the present moment when we find them how they are trying to negotiate their grief um Bo is a child and i think has a pretty natural reaction to uh the death of his mother which is to kind of reach out for connection he's kind of he's almost begging everybody in his family to acknowledge it or or to to share in his sadness um, and the rejection from that he faces from basically everybody else in his family on that front is what kind of steals him to the outside. We see the effects of, of that over two decades on Brandon later because he's completely closed off to everything and everybody around him, he is, he he finds it impossible to express himself, and it's all it all seems to be, you know, his method of coping with that same trauma is to just forget it ever happened because of, you know, because of how the rest of his family had reacted, and then we get to Blue twenty years later, who I think has regressed a little bit. He he now is almost unable to live in the present because he is just entirely consumed by his past and and not being able to rec and having not been able to reconcile it for for the entire course of his life and and um that's a big thing towards the end of the book where where lev kind of points out to him that he he is incapable of imagining the future uh because he is so stuck in mm. what's happened already and it he won't move from it it's it's his conscious decision not to move from it um which is a pretty sad takeaway from all of that but i i i thought it was poignant because it seems to echo a lot of a lot of the way that especially men uh deal with trauma early on in their lives and how it kind of forms a poison inside them as they that 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 continues to harm them as they get older. Hmm. I was I was thinking as as you were saying this that uh, that differentiation between mourning and melancholy might be what you're describing, where melancholy is a state of of never uh, leaving the the cycle of of grief and repression of the grief and experience of the grief and mourning is for a fixed period of time, and it seems as though you're saying that you know especially for men, but not not only for men, there is a state of of melancholy here. 
That's exactly right. One of the the most interesting things about the novel is that it, it starts with Brandon sleeping with a man um, and his boss, as it happens. And he'll have later on in the book, a prolonged relationship with Min, who will be the mother of his child. Queer protagonists are few and far between in science fiction narratives. Firstly, I'm interested in whether Brandon's queerness helped you to understand the identity flux that he goes through after the procedure. And secondly, were you worried at all about the conservative nature and gatekeeping that can sometimes happen um, with fiction that operates in in the science fictional realm? Uh, thank you for 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 bringing all uh, for bringing that up. I, I don't get to talk about it often. And um, I think the root of me making Brandon kind of semi-bisexual, maybe pansexual, if I think if you asked him, he wouldn't be able to tell you. And hmm. he doesn't seem to really know. And I love that about him, that, that, he, that, that part of his identity is amorphous to him. And I think should be, I, I kind of... I, I have concern for the way that our society expects, you know, even young people to align with a certain whatever and, and to stick with it and, and to, to, to have such sharp lines separating them from others. It, and, and the labeling obsession feels concerning. And mm-hmm. that extends to sexual orientation, to uh, race, and to um, especially race in this book, I I wanted to portray you know Brandon's biracialness in a specific way so that everybody who encounters him can't really tell what he is. I feel very inspired by The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen and also Invisible Man by Ellison. Mm. Those the, those two books are narrated by these very nameless, faceless protagonists who kind of take on the color or the, 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 the culture of, of, the, of the environment that they're in. And, and people can't tell what they are. I think that's incredible to, to, to have in, in a main character or someone's point of view. I think that um, uh, to address your second question about you know the gatekeeping of, of queerness or or the the um the fear that some people have in expressing that in science fiction or, or talking about it i you know it's a it's a tough thing even now in in real life to talk about it. it's something that is constantly under attack and and to those who say that it's newly it's newly jeopardized or anything like that because of the last few years it's wrong it's it's always Mm -hmm. jeopardy and the only thing that keeps me from you know feeling much fear about it is is the example that's been made by so many writers before me um and i think there's some really really interesting stuff going on in not just the genre of science fiction fantasy but all over that the that these queer stories are getting at least some kind of traction that they didn't before. I can think of um, this is how you lose the time war, which is like the biggest science fiction book uh, that I can recall with you know two sort of queer leads. Who's the who's the author of that? 
That was written by Max Gladstone okay. and and Amal El Motar. Um, okay. They wrote both, and it's from the, the the point of view of two kind of agents, these time traveling agents that are on opposing sides, both women who, uh, through notes passed through like the cosmos and the time space, fall in love with each other. Mm. Um, oh, I need to read this. It sounds oh, it's incredible. Good. It's wonderful, and the book has been optioned for film. And I and, and I know that both Gladstone and Al Motar have talked about how the identity of both characters being women in love with each other is non-negotiable. They cannot change. Hmm. Uh, whoever adapts this cannot change the gender of those two characters. And I think that's just it's very inspiring uh, to see. You know, they're. Uh, that kind of storytelling is always going to be in jeopardy. I don't really see us as a species getting over that. But what has been done so far is very, you know, it's invigorating. And it's the reason why I feel like I can go out and do it. And maybe somebody reading Flux, you know, working on their own novel might feel the same way with theirs in the next few years or, or however much it happens. It's got to be that because there's no other way to do it. Yeah, I hope so. One one of the competing narratives in the novel is a television show called Raider that Bo watched as a child and which helped to console him after his mother's death. It's a noir detective drama with a stereotypically hardened gumshoe. Why was that an interesting counter narrative to Bo, Brandon and Blue's life? And also, you seem to have an affection for noir while also wishing to pull back the veneer of its style to peer at its real violence at its heart. Uh, that's an amazing question. Uh, all of your questions have been wonderful thus far. Oh, thank um, you so much. <laughs> noir as a genre is so fascinating to me because it is almost entirely style. Um, and it's a style that is so aesthetically kind of comfortable to me with the hard shadows and everybody's cool and smoking a cigarette mm -hmm. and everybody's kind of so they they wear their sort of attraction on their sleeve for for other people. And it's it's cool that, I you know, it feels like a dumb word to use about any kind of art that you like. But but the reason I chose this kind of 80 ish uh miami vice sort of atmosphere for raider was ju was just because it looked it looked cool and i know that uh you know for a lot of people who grew up around that time figures like that were uh, were the epitome of you know everything that they wanted to be and to idolize within a person everything every every aspect of you know, somebody like Indiana Jones or, or somebody more recently, like, I don't know, like Knight Rider or someone, uh, all the, all the, the levels of, you know, uh, skill and courage and savvy, it, it's pushed up to infinity with those characters. And it, mm. it, it's impossible not to, I to idolize them. Um, I, Everybody has a figure like Raider in their lives, I think, especially when they were kids. And um, it, I was trying, to, I think, to spin it out in a way that, you know, a lot of people might not experience as they get older. I think, you know, when you become an adult, you sort of let those things go. But 
Brendan can't. And it's just another, it's another signal of his inability to move on mm. from the trauma. What you say about noir and kind of exposing the, the, the grittiness of it, I think is fascinating as well, because uh, a hallmark of the show Raider is that it was, it, it was almost too much of that. It was too, it was too dark and it was too violent for ma- for mass consumption. And that's part of what makes it cool to Brandon as well, is that it's kind of, you know, it was shunned away from the mainstream. I don't think a show like that actually existed back then, which was an interesting thing. Hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. The, you know, in the eighties, like nobody, nobody was getting shot in the head or like, there was no real like blood, like, like a Tarantino film or something like that. It was, it was a team violence. Right. And uh, it was very, you know, kind of, commercialized and and easy for some 10 year old kid to watch on saturday morning Um, but i think what what is different about raiders and it wasn't that and even so you know brandon ate it up as a child that i i feel like that was something i tried to do to 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 add a measure of unreality to to what was going on there Crucial to Bo's love of the show is Modo, who's Raider's sort of rescued sidekick, for lack of a better word. Uh, and the depiction of Modo, it very much in in Brandon's imagination anyway, if not Bo's, is one that hues to a lot of racist stereotypes of, of Asian characters on television at the time. But he continues to be incredibly important to Bo as a as a representation of young Asian life on television. How did you want to play with the tension between Bo wanting cultural representation, wanting in some way to see himself and to see himself at the side of someone powerful who might rescue him, and also being appalled later in life by the racism in that depiction? I think that's so interesting because you know, especially for someone who is a minority trying to see themselves in media, the match is almost always imperfect or has Mm -hmm. been up Mm -hmm. until pretty, very, very recently. Like I didn't see, I didn't actually see a Korean American person in a big movie probably until like Minari. And that was, oh my goodness, maybe three years ago. Like that kind of thing, and that that is shocking. And so, yeah, it's it, when you're when 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 the resources are so lacking to you, uh, the you take what you can get, mm-hmm. and that's why I think Brandon, even though he understands, or maybe maybe he did as a child understand that the the show was kind of playing off of stereotype and was insens- insensitive in some way, but. It was all that he had. And so the veneer of of fandom kind of descended over his eyes and that he chose just to to ignore it. And I think that's something that gets pointed out to him later on, especially when people watch this, people around him kind of realize how much he loves the show and and comment like that that show wasn't that great. It it was kind of racist, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he, that was all he had. And so, it, it's an it, it it's all he could do to try at least in some way see himself in media so as 
as easily as as white kids could. Mm. Um, he, he aspired to that kind of comfort, and and that's the that's what he was dealt. You directly reference Short Round, Indiana Jones's sidekick in the Temple of Doom, which I have to say was a bit of prescience on your part. Um, it would be impossible to make that reference now without commenting on how the actor who played Short Round, Ki Hui Huan, just won an Oscar for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, a truly incredible film. Two questions. Was Short Round a, an important character to you growing up in the way that you describe of needing an imperfect match despite the racist stereotypes that mar that characterization and two were you struck by how much everything everywhere all at once is similarly interested in the time loops of grief and um and split identity yes i i watched temple of doom as a very young kid and that was probably the first wrong decision was was to watch such a horrific movie like oh, yeah. when I was seven years old. Um, but I I distinctly remember um, l seeing Short Round on film and thinking like, oh my gosh, like he his eyes are the same shape as mine, and he he doesn't talk the way I do. Like he's he's got a very thick accent, but I for I just I I was ignoring that. I was seeing myself on screen for the first time. And it didn't matter at that point that um, we weren't actually the same. We, we, at least it was, he was closer to anything I'd seen than, uh, he was closer to me than anything else I'd seen thus far. So of course I was going to, in some way, attach myself to him. And I, uh, I watched Everything Everywhere all at once, maybe a year ago. And, I had finished the novel and um, it was a weird, it was a weird sensation to watch that happening and to also read, <laughs> read the ways in which people were sort of reporting on Ki Hui Kwan's um, shunning by Hollywood and subsequent kind of 20 years of, of near anonymity because of because he couldn't get work and, and, and the way that he would be 40 years old in a theme park and people would be calling him short round. Like that's mm. honestly heartbreaking mm -hmm. because um, it only happens to people that look like him. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I think that the takeaway from it and seeing, you know, right when I saw that movie and, and knowing how impactful it was going to be and how much, People were going to talk about it. It made me happy for him uh, because it. I, I know that his life was so difficult for so long, but there is there was a happy ending, um, which doesn't happen for the actor who plays Moto in this novel. He hmm. dies as a teenager, kind of, kind of tragically, um, which happened to a lot of I, uh, the one that I, the one that is very much was very much on my mind was the voice actor for the original Peter Pan in 1950 or 60 or something. And he kind of aged out of these youth roles. And then as a teenager was found dead in some like abandoned apartment and his family couldn't even identify the body. Like I, I that, that story has stuck in my mind for a long time and, and, and was one of the things that I wanted to sort of portray um, in what happens to 
The actor who plays Moto is named Maxi Lang, but what happens to him in the course of the novel as well? I, 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 I was, I was thinking about that a lot as to how how badly it could go when I was writing his story. I had no idea uh, the original Peter Pan was voiced by an Asian American. Oh no, he's he was a white kid. Oh, um, oh, okay, okay. But I do think it was 1953, and his name was Bobby Driscoll. Uh, he was he was found just basically homeless, dead when he was 31. That that using up and and bleeding dry and spitting out uh, works so well as an analog for how you depict Silicon Valley techno capitalism in the in the novel. And you've already referenced the influence that the story of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes had on the book. In this case, Io, who is you know, in some ways a stand in for Elizabeth Holmes, but I don't want to give away um, important aspects of the novel, but in, in many ways is is not. Um, but this company, at least on paper, seeks to quite literally sap energy from human brains to, to charge batteries. Um, and it reminds me so much of I, I don't know, have you watched the, the show Severance? Yes. We're talking a lot about things called severance. Your your opening chapter is severance, Ling Ma, the show. But it reminds me of how severance invents a way to have workers bled dry um, by splitting their identities. And I, I wonder what was interesting to you about the techno-capitalist impetus to extract all of our energy and, and labor and to have us distance ourselves, almost put that worker self to one side and, and try and have a kind of a split life. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, it's terrifying to me because it is basically already happening. Mm. And, you know, there, um, the conversion of people into just capital feels like a thing that we are creeping towards in, I'm thinking about the Amazon warehouses where you have to like, if you're one of the package preparers, you have to string yourself up with bungee cords and climb like a two story shelf to, to grab something from the top. And then if you fall, then maybe the bungee cord catches you, but then you lose like a point percentage off of your efficacy rating. And then you get a ding and then you might get fired. Like uh, that, it's dystopian in uh, absolutely concerning because it's true and it's not it's not a fake thing it's actually happening i know that the movie nomadland was kind of uh it got a knock against it for almost glossing over the the way that someone who works in one of those amazon facilities in the same way that francis mcdormand's character does in that movie it's a it's a miserable it can be a miserable existence because you can't go to the bathroom. You get docked for paying, for, you, you get docked your pay if you like sneeze and you are, uh, and you, you miss a second window or something like that. That mm -hmm. if, you know, and I think a lot of shows are, are playing with that and making it literal in, in, in a speculative bend. Um, I love the I love that show Severance because it does that. There is a there is a show, not a show, a novel called The Warehouse, um, by Rob Hart, which kind of portrays a 
a facsimile of Amazon that is that goes further in that you can kind of you can sign away certain rights to be able to even live in the factory and you mm-hmm. get your own little housing, you get your own dining like dining points, and you just become a citizen of the warehouse. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that's what we're headed toward. I, Rob Hart is an incredible writer, and he 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 did that perfectly and and um, revealed, at least to me while I was reading it, the way that big tech is has already made those steps. We already know what's what their goal is. Um, and the the pieces that come out about, you know, the the continuing efforts to unionize or the the the, the very unsafe working environments, especially out of the United States, in like the Apple warehouses in China and things like that, it mm-hmm. it gets reported, but people don't care that much. Yeah, there's a, I mean, <laughs> uh, we can argue lots about Marx, but he certainly seemed to have that right about <laughs> about capitalism. <laughs> um, at lest I leave us on on such a, a a depressing note, I would love it if you have some recommendations of things you've been loving to read recently. I do actually. Um, I find myself not specifically not reading while writing because I I like to just tune out a lot of the noise. However, this book is almost out. And so I've been able to get back into um, at least reading for pleasure. And it's been really, really wonderful. The last book that I read was The Writing Retreat by Julia Bartz. Um, it's now a bestseller. It's, it's about uh, a young woman, kind of a failed author who gets invited to this very kind of prestigious retreat hosted by her her idol author, a mystery writer, who has gathered a bunch of other aspiring writers and said, you have one month to write a novel and the winner will get a million dollar publishing deal. It's it's like, it's harrowing. Oh uh, <laughs> and it, it ends incredibly well. Uh, I, I love that one. I'm actually, I was very lucky to read um, uh, an upcoming book. It's coming out March 28th. It's by my friend Gina Chung, and it's called Sea Change. Um, and it's about a young woman whose father has disappeared in in kind of a tropical maelstrom while on a research trip. And uh, is the last kind of piece of his memory is a giant Pacific octopus that he rescued that she has formed this bond with. It's, it's very... Um, you know, it's heartbreaking and deals with a lot of the same sort of a uh, human response and, and negotiation with grief that, that I find so uh, poignant and, and what I find myself returning to in my own work as well. Gina is is coming to the to the literary festival that I, I host at the college I work oh, at. Um, and I and I think Sea Change is so brilliant. Um, I love that octopuses are having a moment in, in they literature. Are. Yes. <laughs> and for good reason. They're mm-hmm. animals. 
<laughs> and so and so brilliant and, mm -hmm. and and yeah there's just yeah i agree that there's actually some wonderful overlays with your own treatment of grief and and genus and it's and it's a beautiful book well those are fantastic recommendations and i can't recommend enough to my listeners flux by jinu chong and it was really just wonderful to get a chance to talk to you about it and to explore there's so many fascinating interwoven narrative lines and points of interest and contemporary topics that just course through this novel. And I just, um, I want everyone to run out to their local independent bookstore and get a copy of Flux. So thank you, Janu, for coming on and, and talking with me. Thank you, Chris. This was incredible. And thank you for these amazing questions um it's it's the it's the great pleasure to be able to talk to people who've read this now after having had it in my head just privately for so long and and to hear to hear someone's very thoughtful take on on it, it, it it's the greatest privilege so thank you well it was absolutely my pleasure Well, that's all from me for now. Many thanks to Jinu Chong for coming on the show to talk about his extraordinary debut novel, Flux. You can find links to purchase Flux and all of Jinu's recommendations at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, podcast merch, and ways to get in touch. Stay tuned for my interview next week with Rashid Newson author of My Government Means to Kill Me. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs> <laughs>